Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Okay, welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am your host, Nico Perino. And today I am in FIRE's D.C. headquarters to talk about the Supreme Court, its last term, and of course what the future holds for the court without Anthony Kennedy. And joining me today are uh, Paul Sherman, he's a senior attorney at the Institute for Justice, Bob Korn-Revere, he's a partner at Davis Wright Tremaine, and Walter Olson, who is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. So gang, we are about 12 hours out from President Trump's announcement that Brett Kavanaugh is going to replace, or is nominated to replace, Anthony Kennedy on the Supreme Court. This is a free speech First Amendment podcast, so I wanted to see if you had any takes on where he might come out on that issue, if he is, of course, uh, confirmed to the court. I mean, I, I think I would expect him to be generally in the mold of the other conservative members of the court. Um, I'm not super familiar with his First Amendment decisions. Well, he's with the majority in Speech Now. Yeah, that's that's true. Although Speech Now, which is the, the decision that created so-called super PACs, mm-hmm. um, the outcome in that was more or less foretold by the Citizens United decision, which actually came down like a week before the oral argument in that case. Um, in fact, little trivia for people, the first question that was asked at that oral argument was, what do you have to tell us that Justice Kennedy didn't tell us last week? Uh, so so that case was already pre-decided, I think. Do you think it would have gone the other way without Citizens United? Uh, I think, uh, so Speech Now was litigated by the Institute for Justice. I think we still would have won uh, even without Citizens United, but I think it would have been a, a much closer case. It certainly would not have been unanimous. Yeah. Um, a couple other decisions, he had a decision called Emily's List, which preceded uh, the Citizens United decision, or I'm sorry, the Speech Now decision. Uh, also a campaign finance decision, um, dealing with a similar issue, um, and I thought he, he really got that one right. On the flip side, he wrote a decision in a case called Blumen versus FEC, which was about the First Amendment rights of non-citizens who are lawfully within the United States mm-hmm. to make campaign contributions or political expenditures. Um, and I really thought his reasoning in that case was just totally divorced from the, the What court. was it? So w- what he said in that case, so the, the plaintiffs in that case were a, uh, a lawyer and a doctor who were lawfully in the United States. One wanted to support Democrats, one wanted to support Republicans, and they wanted to do so in very modest ways. One of them wanted to like print up flyers that said vote for Barack Obama and distribute them in Central Park. That's prohibited under federal law. Um, now under Citizens United, uh, which said that corporations and unions can spend unlimited amounts on that kind of advocacy, I thought it should have been an easy case because whatever you think about whether corporations are people, non-citizens are definitely people. And, uh, but Kavanaugh said, no, it's, it's perfectly constitutional to prohibit them even from distributing flyers in the park. And his reasoning just really didn't go into any of the First Amendment precedent. It was much more kind of a meta-level discussion of what it means to be a democracy and to be a, cons- a relevant constituent. Um, and I think there are troubling implications to that decision because it could suggest, for example, that people can be prohibited from giving political contributions to people in other states yeah. where they don't have the right to vote. So, but you know, that's kind of my focus is on his campaign finance decision. Yeah, he's had a couple of those. I wonder though, um, was that you said before Citizens United or after the? That that was after Citizens United yeah, because. And, 
Um, I remember uh, in the uh, political follow-up to Citizens United, uh, one of the great themes of the critics of the decision, and uh, you know, possibly misplaced, but nonetheless one that they seized on as a big theme, is um, now it's going to be possible for foreigners to influence American elections because look at these corporations. Uh, you could even say it about some of the unions. They are international. You can't tell um, whether a dollar inside a large uh, multinational company came from the U.S. or came from some sinister other country. And uh, so there may have been an element of defensiveness about, no, uh, this particular slope is not especially slippery because we can bring in uh, principles from um, alienage and immigration law or wherever and show that these are completely uh, uh, legally different things. I, I, I think that's right. I mean, the, the, the blowback on Citizens United, I think, was much bigger than the Supreme Court expected. And so I do think that that played a factor in Judge Kavanaugh's decision. And then the case actually went up to the Supreme Court on direct appeal, and the court summarily affirmed it with no dissenting justices. And I think similarly that was in part the court trying to manage its reputation a little bit following the Citizens United decision. Yeah, Bob? Yeah. Oh, I generally agree with Paul that I think he's going to be in the mold of the uh, conservative justices that uh, are currently on the court. I don't know that he'll be quite as speech protective as Justice Kennedy has been over his career, although that, that's a difficult act to follow. Um, mm -hmm. But a couple of his decisions or opinions uh, stand out. One is his dissent in the U.S. Telecom um, uh, case involving network neutrality, where he said that the FCC's rules uh, were unconstitutional. Yeah, Liptak dinged him for that this morning in his uh, story about him. He said he, he has also been open to using the First Amendment to strike down government regulations. I'm sure Paul will have a lot <laughs> to say about that. <laughs> Dissenting from the full District of Columbia Circuit decision not to rehear a three-judge panel's decision upholding the Obama administration's net neutrality regulations. That, well, that's right. And, but that's actually, as a former FCC staff member, <laughs> that's one of the things that would in, endear him to me because yeah. uh, having spent years challenging the FCC's indecency rules, Rules, for example, uh, there are a lot of regulations that uh, uh, are business regulations, but also direct, directly regulate speech. So it probably would be a refreshing thing to have a justice open to the ideas that that kind of normal economic regulation of communications industries can have uh, constitutional implications. Uh, he also has some of, some of a track record in commercial speech cases. For example, the American Meat Institute case, which was decided on banc by the uh, D.C. Circuit, and which extended the uh, notion of uh, rational basis scrutiny for having government labeling requirements. In this case, it was country of origin labeling um, for, uh, for meat products. Uh, and here's where the D.C. Circuit extended the Zotterer Doctrine, Zotterer versus Office of, of Disciplinary Counsel, saying that you didn't have to have a commercial speech interest that was uh, based on potential deception of speech, but just any kind of governmental interest would do, and the rational basis review that was applied was considered to be a really very rational basis uh -huh. review. Uh, there were a couple of separate opinions. One was Janice Rogers Brown, who dissented and wrote a very strong dissent, uh, saying that, no, this is an, a, a distortion of commercial speech doctrine. And then Judge Kavanaugh wrote sort of a middle ground opinion, trying to uh, um, defend uh, a, a loosened Zotter doctrine as being really no different from typical commercial speech doctrine. And I think he really kind of got that wrong. So I think he will be in the mold of, of the conservative justices, but not as speech protective as Justice Kennedy. Yeah, and I want to get into the tiered scrutiny when we talk a little bit about NIFLA. Yes. 
Um, but I want to, before we close out our discussion of Kavanaugh, Mark Randazza, who is uh, <laughs> very vocal <laughs> in the First Amendment community, it's an understatement, I know. Uh, he's very vocal in any community. <laughs> <laughs> but he's concerned about the, the uh, Brett Kavanaugh's position on anti-slap analysis, particularly in the federal courts, and yeah. his idea. And this is what this is what this article from the Hollywood Reporter said. Uh, he ruled in what was the case? The Abbas case. Yeah. That um, the problem with anti-slap laws, as Kavanaugh sees it, is that states are essentially dictating how federal courts run. He believes the providence of Congress, which, if it so wished, could heighten the pleading standards for lawsuits. So it seems to be, though, that his issue there is procedural, as Walter and I were talking about earlier, and not so much with the 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 speech implications of it. Yeah, I read that Hollywood Reporter article, and I, uh, even on its own terms, I didn't find it convincing. Now, perhaps there's more to the story, uh -huh. uh, uh, but the, um, <clears throat> the standard rule is that states don't get to describe procedure for federal courts, and that when a um, uh, case uh, arising from state law and thus potentially governed by some of the state's anti-slap statute, uh, when it winds up in federal court because of removal or some other reason, uh, the federal court will use its own procedure, thus ignoring whatever it deems procedural of the slap rule. That just seems standard procedure to me. Right, but that, that, this is why it's both a civil procedure question and a quasi-First Amendment question in that the question is whether or not state anti-slap laws are procedural or substantive. And then that determines whether or not a federal court's going to apply them. And that has been a matter of controversy, and particularly in the D.C. Circuit. Mm -hmm. So and Mark is, is especially attuned to that because he wrote the Nevada anti-slap law. Yeah, here's what he says. He says, I think that Kavanaugh would be disappointing choice for a First Amendment perspective. His opinion in Abbas was, quite frankly, crap, the kind of crap that you see from the kind of judge <laughs> who likes to play favorites. I see him creating an anti-free speech alliance with Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan. Well, well that, that's just Mark mincing words the way he typically does. <laughs> Is she actually the target for an anti-free speech alliance as opposed to a couple of the other justices? <laughs> I, I don't know. I think he's referencing the uh, weaponizing the First Amendment uh, yes. note in her dissent. So in order to get into federal court with a, uh, with a slap claim is that you, you need to have claims in two different states, right, or over $75,000? You have to have both. So you have yep. to have diversity of citizenship, and then you also have to meet the amount in controversy requirement. And Kavanaugh would argue, even if you have that, you don't belong in federal court? Well, no, I, th I think you would say you can get into to federal court, mm -hmm. but that you, you can't get the case yep. dismissed as easily under the anti-slap. Gotcha. Case. Right. But again, <clears throat> Kavanaugh is, if nothing else, uh, the kind of judge for whom all of these procedural sorts of questions are second nature, and it would naturally turn to the boxes in his head about whether or not particular types of clauses are procedural or substantive, probably without uh, thinking, uh, gee, I'm, I so badly want the outcome of this case to come out that I will tie <laughs> my hands even when that uh, announced rule doesn't make sense as far as whether or not a particular clause is. It you know, it's just isn't, to my knowledge, the way judges like him decide cases. They think about, you know, over the long run, which will involve lots of very different cases, should this um, uh, uh, clause be interpreted as, as procedural or substantive and then pick on that basis. Right. And this was an issue that had been picked up by Judge uh, Kaczynski in the Ninth Circuit, um, which has sort of led to a series of, of cases uh, that uh, 
um, wrestled over this procedural versus substantive question. Yeah. Speaking of Kaczynski, he was a Kaczynski clerk, Brett Kavanaugh was, before yes. going up to clerk for Anthony Kennedy, who he's nominated to replace. That's sort of like the libertarian track to the Supreme Court. <laughs> <laughs> if, you're, if you're a libertarian lawyer and you're good at what you do, that's generally the track when Kaczynski, of course, was still on the Ninth Circuit. I should note that my colleague Rob Johnson clerked for both uh, Kaczynski and for Anthony Kennedy. So if there's another opening, I just want people to know that Rob is available. <laughs> but let's talk a little bit about Anthony Kennedy and his free speech legacy. I'm going to go through an article that Erwin Chemerinsky wrote for SCOTUS blog that sort of recapped and then I think did it well. Uh, on the free speech side, he authored the majority opinion in Citizens United. Of course, uh, that's probably his most famous one. Also, he was uh, he voted to strike down campaign finance laws uh, like in McCutcheon. Arizona Free Enterprise Club's Freedom Club Pack. That was your case, right? Yeah, that was, uh, well, I, I did a little bit of work on that case. It was IJ's case. It was case. an IJ case, <laughs> yeah. And then Davis v. Uh, Federal Election Commission. He also wrote the opinions in Packingham from last, last year's term. Yep. Uh, he also was part of the majority in Reno, uh, Reno v. American Civil Liberties Union. He wrote the opinion for the court declaring a subsequent statute, the Child Online Protection Act, to be unconstitutional in Ashcroft. So he's got a lot, as you can see. He was also, of course, with the majorities in Janus and NIFLA. Uh, but he wasn't all that... Well, on the... Well, don't, don't forget, he wrote the majority opinion in Playboy. Yeah, which was your case, yes. of course. I, I, I love that decision. I cite that decision all the time because there's so many just good, quotable lines about strict scrutiny and the burden on the government. I mean, that's just a, a go-to case. He was also with the, uh, the majority in or he wrote the opinion in Alvarez, I believe. Yes, he did. Yeah. And again, as, as is typical of his opinion, so many memorable lines that you want to use in case after case. Yeah, Oceana's Ministry of Truth lines. Exactly. That that truth case. does not need a badge nor weapons to, uh, to protect. But that was a critique, critique of Kennedy as well, as he, had, he used this flowery language. That's why I loved him. <laughs> but uh, on the negative side, at least from Fire's perspective, he also wrote the majority opinion in Garcetti, and he uh, joined Roberts in his majority opinion in Morris v. Frederick, which I know you like to harp on about. What <laughs> well, do you make Morris, of those? Well, you know, no justice is going to vote every time in the way that you want. Uh, as an overall track record and also just for the tenor of his decisions, I have to say that Anthony Kennedy was, uh, I think, far and away um, my favorite First Amendment friendly justice since uh, Robert Jackson uh, wrote about it. There's one fixed star in our constitutional constellation. It's mm -hmm. no official higher petty shall declare what is orthodox in politics, religion, and matters of opinion. You know, Kennedy was capable and did write those kinds of lines in key cases. Uh, and so, and being the swing justice in so many cases, uh, it made him all the more influential. And that's, uh, I think, a uh, summation of why he was important. Um, but there are cases like Garcetti that is widely criticized by Erwin Chemerinsky, among others. Uh, and, you know, for, for many good reasons. I mean, there are a lot of problems with the Garcetti decision defining the rights of, of public employees. On the other hand, there are some, depending on what context the question comes up, decisions like Garcetti can be very helpful. For example, uh, I've had a number of cases where people have talked about government officials throwing their weight around and coercing people to do various things, and the defense inevitably is, well, he's just exercising his First Amendment rights. 
Well, you know, if you're speaking in an official capacity for the government, you're not exercising your First Amendment rights. Governments have powers, not rights. Individuals in their private capacity have rights. And so Garcetti was very useful in that context. Morse versus Frederick, which you mentioned, is another of those cases that is a problematic case for a lot of reasons. One is that it really did set back the, the notion of rights for students at the secondary level, but it did so as much because of its problematic facts as anything else. You have a student who was just goofing around, and when asked what he was trying to say, said, I don't know, I was, thought it was funny. Well, funny's good, and I think funny is something that deserves constitutional protection, but when you're in a tenuous area like secondary education, First Amendment rights, funny's not going to cut it. And so I, I can forgive a justice like Kennedy for voting the way he did in that case as much as I really wish the case had been different and come out differently. Yeah, I think one of the, the things about Kennedy is when you're talking about adults speaking in what I term the real world, so not in school, not in the context of government employment, I think he was as close to a free speech absolutist as the court has had. And in fact, I, I wish I could remember the concurrence off the top of my head, I can't now, you, you might. Um, he was skeptical even of strict scrutiny in content-based cases. He just thought that like, if you're regulating based on content, often that's just per se unconstitutional and we are not gonna look at the government's interests, we are not gonna look at tailoring. And um, I would also tie this into the narrative you have seen in uh, recent weeks and months about how, uh, oh, well, the free speech court is not really such a free speech court. They've we weaponized it on behalf of, of business interests, so they will point to uh, campaign finance cases and they'll point to commercial speech cases and say, you know, this is all a, a plot uh, of a few law professors to deregulate. Well, <clears throat> in fact, in Kennedy's record, you had uh, milestone cases from those areas, but you also had Packingham on uh, sex offenders and Alvarez on Still on Valor, and you could not find better examples of unsympathetic uh, individual claimants who he probably didn't want to win in some sense, but who as a free speech absolutist or delightfully close to one, uh, he was going to make sure it did win. That's a really good point because that has become the narrative. First it started in the academic world and now we see it with the uh, recent rhetoric and the dissenting opinions in uh, Janus and to a certain extent in uh, NIFLA. Um, yeah. Um, talking about weaponizing the First Amendment and uh, using the First Amendment to protect corporations and the powerful and, and not protecting uh, the weak and dispossessed. And yet, if you look at the cases, many of which were classified by the, uh, the academics as, quote, conservative cases, they are for <laughs> as dispossessed as you can get. Alvarez, who is an inveterate liar, uh, challenging uh, federal protection for military honors, uh, that's not exactly protecting the uh, the powerful and, and privileged. Um, protecting the Westboro Baptist Church uh, in uh, Snyder versus Phelps. Uh, protecting crush videos in United States versus Stevens. All of those are classified as conservative wins at the court because the conservative uh, uh, court decided the cases. But they are hardly examples of the kinds of things that are protecting entrenched power. They're protecting really the most powerless of, of uh, minorities, and that is people who engage in hateful or hated speech. Yeah, I think in order to falsify the claim that they're just using the First Amendment to protect the powerful, you would need to be able to show when they are not using the First Amendment to protect the weak. And I think across the board with Kennedy, you're finding it that he, he is 
applying the First Amendment evenly across the board. That's right. And that is the glory of the First Amendment. It's neutrality. That is the only thing that, that makes it work and makes our system work. If uh, you're going to be using it as a weapon, if you're weaponizing it, uh, and saying that it really should be used in service of progressive values or even, quote, democratic values, um, then, uh, you know, I think you're subverting the notion that it has to be neutral. So we're going to get to the cases here, but since we're already on this topic, is there an argument to make amongst these prof progressive professors, such like, like Seedman over at Georgetown, that for decades the First Amendment was looking at protecting political protest, uh, dissenting voices in one way or another, but it has moved the, the uh, boundaries of what the First Amendment protect it continues to expand and now we're getting First Amendment Lochnerism where it's being used to apply in places where it at least was conceived to not have applied in the middle part of the century. But I, again, I, I don't know when you would get the impression that it's not protecting dissenting voices. You'll see that it protects voices that previously those who championed the cases in the 60s and, and early 70s would not have supported, you know, anti-abortion protesters in McCullen versus Coakley, for example, or the Westboro Baptist Church. That doesn't mean that it's not protecting voices of protest. It's just protecting voices of protest that the commentators don't like. I, I think we've also seen a shift in the types of cases that are coming before the court. I think one of the early First Amendment issues that the court had to resolve is, can we ban speech just because we find it offensive? And the, the modern court, I think, has more or less definitively resolved that. You just can't ban speech because you find it offensive. Yeah, Levy Tam last term. Yeah, and, and the, but the, the modern fight is not about that. The modern fight is about whether you can ban speech that's effective, speech that actually can persuade people, that can change people's minds, can cause them to buy something in the marketplace that you don't think they should, can cause them to vote for somebody you don't think they should. And that's where we see the really close 5-4 fights on the court. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's any doubt that um, part of the critique is correct in that, yes, the courts have moved the line of what they will police as far as First Amendment implications of complicated regulatory schemes like federal labor law or uh, product disclosure or uh, uh, various uh, other industry regulation schemes. Uh, if the same cases had been sued in 1960, the government would have routinely won on, on a number of these commercial speech and, and union cases. On the other hand, go back a little bit further and it would have routinely won on Pledge of Allegiance cases because that was what America at mid-century was kind of like. That's right. It was felt that there was a wide-ranging right to make you get up and recite things that you might not actually believe, uh, for forced expression, or perhaps keep you from saying other things that you did believe. Times have changed. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and too, I mean, one of the areas that is criticized most is the area of commercial speech and talking about how the court now has moved toward protecting these corporate interests. And yet, if you look at the origins of the commercial speech doctrine, even before the Virginia Board of Pharmacy case, you had the precursor of Bigelow versus Virginia, which was decided in 1975, which was a question of whether or not the state of Virginia could uh, punish a newspaper for publishing advertisements for abortion services in New York. And, uh, you know, so if you view the commercial speech protections through that lens, I think, I think those people who are criticizing the court now would be all for that 1975 decision. Yeah, I, well, and I think another thing that is, most people just don't realize that First Amendment doctrine as like a separate body of law with coherent rules 
is a very modern development. I mean, in the mid 20th yeah. century, there essentially was no First Amendment doctrine. Like, you can go back and read some of those decisions. I don't think a federal regulation was struck down until the 1960s in the Postmaster case. Um, so, you know, what we have seen is the, the historical view of the First Amendment by the court was extremely narrow, and gradually they have expanded it. And what I think we have found over time is that speech is not nearly as dangerous as people tend to think it is, and that creates momentum momentum for further expanding the protection of the First Amendment. Liptak talks in his article about how the court led by Chief Justice Ern Warren from 1953 to 1969 was almost exclusively concerned with cases concerning liberal speech. Of its 60 free expression cases, only five or about 8% challenged the suppression of conservative speech. The but, but that's not about the court, that's about the times, right? If you think about what the controversies were in the 1950s and the 1960s and even through the 1970s, we were talking about um, regulation of obscenity and the obscenity laws were changing at the time, although that, the political valence of that has shifted back and forth over time. Um, you had the anti-war movement, you have the civil rights movement, all of those things where you had people being put in jail for standing silently in a library Right, uh, you know, of course, the decisions that went to the court were considered to be quote progressive or liberal decisions because those were the kinds of laws that were being enforced at the time. Those were the movements that were bringing the cases. The fact that that shifts over time because times change, issues change, doesn't say anything necessarily about the composition or the proclivities of the court as much as it does. What are the current issues? And you can do that for any period of history where you're talking about the development of First Amendment doctrine. It's like an archaeological dig where you can see what was going on in society at the time based on what layer you're excavating and seeing what kinds of issues the court was facing. Yeah, and I, you know, just to build off of that, I mean, that's why campaign finance issues were not a thing before 1974 when uh, right. the campaign finance laws, when we had sort of the first comprehensive regulation of campaign finance at the federal level. And almost immediately afterwards, the Supreme Court stru started striking down campaign finance laws. It upheld some and it struck down others. Yeah, I think in order to, again, falsify this claim, you need to look at what case in, cases petition for cert and which are denied and look at the partisanship of those cases. I think a lot of the questions that will concern what Liptak would call liberal speakers uh, are you know, closed questions at this point. And the open questions rest in the commercial professional speech play, uh, areas, the, the campaign finance areas. So I'd, I'd be interested in looking what cases are granted cert and which of those cases regard a still open question in the First Amendment world. I would also, I, th I think another thing going on here is just the rise of the conservative and libertarian legal movement, which kind of happened throughout the 80s and 90s and, and early 2000s in a way that it was not going on in the 60s and 70s. So there's just more right-leaning and libertarian public interest groups out there. And those groups were skeptical of the First Amendment, perhaps not pleading First Amendment claims. But you know, this is like a Rorschach test, right? If you ask people what the inkblot means or what it looks like, it really depends on what perspective you're bringing to it. and and. You know, speaking as someone who doesn't like either the either label, liberal or conservative, and I think the, the using terms Democrat and Republican to define a worldview are a joke, right? Uh, to then start debating over who should be on the court or what decisions mean based on superimposing those perspectives renders renders them essentially meaningless. Mm -hmm. uh, also, the <coughs> the strategy of uh, uh, 
legal strategists, and, the, and I would date this not just back to the rise of the conservative and libertarian one from the 80s and 90s on, but of course to the tremendously uh, significant and successful public interest law movements uh, from the left that had gone through the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Uh, in each case, they work with um, the court they find and with the willingness to look at issues of the courts that they found. Uh, many of the victories that the earlier ACLU and uh, environmental type litigators had were not exactly the victories they wanted, but they were the ones that the courts were willing to give. For example, slowing down projects because they had not uh, considered environmental impact statements well enough. That was not the first choice of most of the smart environmental litigation strategists, but it was the thing that the courts would, were willing to give them in, in considerable quantity. And likewise, um, I think reading uh, a lot of groups that believe that uh, the administrative state should be rolled back. Uh, you know, they come in with ten outrageous situations or or things that they'd like to change. Seven or eight of them, the courts they know are not going to do a thing about. Uh, and there are one or two free speech claims or or something else that ties in with an area that the court is willing to look at uh, rigorously. And those are the ones they go with. Do you think we'll start losing the liberal wing of the court on First Amendment issues? I mean, I feel working in the campus context that we're losing the liberal progressive wing of the campus community. The, the argument being, I, I, feel, I fear we live in the era of the politics of expediency. Well, and the, well, this was the point that I was getting to, and it's not, I, I wouldn't really even call it the politics of expediency, it's the tribalism that has affected uh, but it's our, expediency in the sense that we're talking about court packing now. I mean, we're, we're uh, talking. Yeah, but, but yeah, I mean, everything that politics touches, it diminishes and destroys. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, once you inject politics into legal discussions, you have uh, distorted them. Mm -hmm. It's the way people cover uh, uh, political races. I mean, they cover it like it's sports. Uh, and, and when you start superimposing that onto analysis of the courts, it even, the effect is even worse because the courts are supposed to be principled and they're supposed to adhere to the rule of law. Uh, but once we start trying to game the process or second guess or handicap who's going to do what, uh, then I think you've really taken it away from the substance of what should be going on. And uh, again, it renders the whole process meaningless. Yeah. So should we get into uh, NIFLA now? Finally get into the cases. So I want to talk about this case. Uh, it involved the California Reproductive Freedom Accountability Comprehensive Care and Transparency Act, the FACT Act for short. Uh, the FACT Act requires clinics that primarily serve pregnant women to provide certain notices. Clinics that are licensed must notify women that California provides free or low-cost services, including abortions, and give them a phone number to call. Uh, unlicensed clinics must notify women that California has not licensed the clinics to provide medical services. The petitioners in this case allege that both the licensed and the unlicensed notices abridge the freedom of speech protected by the First Amendment, and the court agreed. Were they right, Paul? Uh, they were 100% right, and this is an incredibly significant decision, far more significant than I think most people realize, and the reason why is because the court rejects uh, the so-called professional speech doctrine. This has been an open question in First Amendment law for decades. The question is, do government regulations of occupations trump the First Amendment? And surprisingly, even though we have a growing number of people who need a license from the government to work in their chosen occupation, court had never squarely addressed that. Um, it had The closest it had come was a 1985 case called Lowe versus Securities Exchange Commission, where the majority 
decided the case on statutory grounds, um, a concurrence by Justice Byron White, joined by two other justices, said that there's this distinction uh, between the practice of an occupation and speech. And the, the line that, I mean, he frankly just kind of made up, it wasn't based on anything in the case law, was that if you're taking a person's af affairs personally in hand and exercising judgment on their behalf, you are engaged in the practice of an occupation and all of your speech is just incidental to the regulation of that conduct. Um, no other member of the Supreme Court had ever adopted that view, but it was very influential in the lower courts um, and it controlled uh, in the Ninth Circuit in this case. Um, but it was in, I think, irreconcilable tension with virtually everything else the court had said about the First Amendment in the last 30 years. And in this case, the Supreme Court definitively rejects it and just says there is no historical basis that we are aware of for a separate professional speech doctrine. So this has huge implications for anyone who speaks for a living, whether it's a, a doctor, a lawyer, IJ has done cases involving tour guides, psychologists, <laughs> diet coaches, uh, veterinarians. Um, so People who write newspaper columns about, uh, an about a licensed field. Yeah, so, so I mean, talk, you know, we want to talk about weaponizing the First Amendment. This is a potent weapon in IJ's arsenal, and we are going to use it to protect the First Amendment rights of people throughout the country. Yeah, I would agree. This is a very important decision, and it also is something that helps cut through what has been a very confused area, because just as the court has never formally adopted a professional speech doctrine, it has grown up, or the, the notion of it in the lower courts has grown up along with the commercial speech cases, which come from things like lawyer advertising and so on. And so the court has sort of treated these things together uh, and, and applied some lower level of scrutiny. And so for the first time, you have the Supreme Court addressing this, taking it head on and saying there is no specific professional speech doctrine. It also comes at a time when there's a lot of confusion over sort of an offshoot of commercial speech doctrine involving um, compelled labeling, um, the Zotterer doctrine, mm -hmm. which is, again, where if you consider commercial speech to be a, an area of somewhat lesser protected speech, Zotterer is the, the poor second cousin that gets even less level of scrutiny, saying, ah, come on, it serves the marketplace of ideas. We force you to say something good, so, you know, it's, it's okay with us. Good, close enough for government. So with the Zotterer doctrine, it seems here... It says, where a law requires professionals to disclose factual, non-controversial information in their commercial speech regulation would be permitted. Is the issue here that it involves controversial speech? Well, it, it's speech it, about it, abortions. Well, here, well, th that's part of it. And, and it's interesting the way the decisions broke out in this case, depending on where you see the emphasis, whether it was simply because it was content-based or because it was viewpoint-based. Uh, but uh, uh, the... Um, the Zotterer Doctrine, though, for years operated as something like a footnote in commercial speech doctrine. And it has gained prominence lately since the American Meat Institute case that I mentioned a little mm -hmm. bit ago in, in the D.C. Circuit. Um, there has been a lot of confusion in the circuit courts about how it applies. The threshold question is whether or not there is, in a commercial uh, a advertising or commercial speech context, whether or not there's the possibility of deception. And for many, that was considered to be the threshold. If advertising wasn't potentially deceptive or affirmatively deceptive, then the Zotterer Doctrine did not apply. And if it did apply, then it had to be a purely factual disclosure and one that was not uh, purely factual, non-controversial, and not too burdensome. Okay, those conditions all had to be met. 
Um, lately, as courts have begun to move away from whether or not it has to be controversial, the focus has been on whether or not it is, or I'm sorry, whether or not it has to be potentially deceptive. The focus has been on whether or not it is controversial, clearly factual, or not too burdensome. And the drift has been toward, again, close enough for government work. And so this case, in addition to clarifying the professional speech doctrine, draws a firmer line, saying that the government does have a burden to show that this kind of labeling is actually necessary, that it's not too burdensome, and that it's purely factual. I, I think that's a, a critically important point, because if you remove that threshold question, the government can compel you to say anything factual about your product or service, and that is inherently going to become politicized. I mean, that's why, you know, People want country of origin labeling on meat, you know, not because meat from Brazil is really less healthy than meat from America, but because they have a, a political intuition about where people should buy their meat from. That's right. That's so right. Here's, here's what the court said about professional speech. But this court has not recognized professional speech as a separate category of speech. Speech is not unprotected merely because it is uttered by professionals. Right. And then later in the opinion, uh, who authored, was this Thomas? Yes. Yes, yes Thomas. Uh, later in the opinion, Thomas writes, all that is required to make something a profession, according to these courts, is that it involves personalized services and requires a professional license from the state. But this gives the state's unfettered power to reduce a group's First Amendment rights by simply imposing a licensing requirement. States cannot choose the protection that speech receives under the First Amendment, as that would give them a powerful tool to impose invidious discrimination of disfavored subjects. Yeah, and, and so this is something that IJ sees all the time in our cases trying to defend occupational speech. Uh, so I've got a case, actually, the, the timing on the NIFLA decision was perfect. It came down on Tuesday. I had my final reply brief on in support of a motion for summary judgment in an occupational speech case <laughs> due on Thursday. And so I spent 48 hours frantically rewriting this brief. Uh, it's a challenge to Florida's licensure of dietetics. Um, I represent a woman named Heather Del Castillo. Uh, who is a uh, privately certified health coach. She used to give dietary advice in California. Her husband's in the military, they were transferred to Florida, and suddenly her dietary advice is illegal. It's perfectly legal in California because they don't regulate the practice of dietetics. And uh, what's great about this decision is, you know, now we can defeat the government's argument that, oh, she's not really speaking when she gives dietary advice. She's engaged in the practice of uh, dietetics or nutrition counseling. Mm. Something stuck out to me in this opinion, uh, which was the note that the author of the FACT Act seemed to have a bias against uh, pro-life groups that um, provided family planning. And in the opinion it writes, unfortunately the author of the FACT Act stated there are nearly 200 licensed and unlicensed crisis pregnancy centers in California. These centers aim to discourage and prevent women from seeking abortion, said the author. The author of the FACT Act observed that crisis pregnancy centers are, quote, commonly affiliated with or run by organizations whose stated goal is to oppose abortion, including the National Institute of Family and Life Advocates. Was this a note to try and get the vote of Kennedy, who seemed very concerned about underlying biases in uh, the masterpiece case? Well, well, actually, you see that's in, in Kennedy's concurrence in this case, where he talks about, and he's joined by Robert Salito and Gorsuch, talking about how it's a two -page this concurrence, really yeah. is. It's a two-page concurrence, but he focuses on the fact that this really is 
really viewpoint based, that it really is focused at these particular kinds of clinics. And you see this tacitly echoed in Justice Breyer's uh, dissent, where he talks about how, well, yeah, there are exceptions, it doesn't apply to these other clinics, but we don't have to apply it to them because they're not so inclined not to say these things anyway. So compulsion is good if you need it. Um, one of you may know the answer to a question that uh, occurred to me on this, which is uh, it's been argued, at least in the popular press, that there is now a um, different Supreme Court treatment of uh, laws aimed at abortion clinics requiring them to disclose facts that might uh, cause people to go elsewhere, and that um, potentially that difference in treatment had been uh, built on the idea that at the um, counseling centers, uh, no one was actually a medical professional, and so no one was under the added First Amendment disabilities that medical professionals have. Is well, that all now going to clutter? Well, that, well that, that was an element of this, because there were two different kinds of requirements for licensed clinics and unlicensed clinics. And the unlicensed ones simply had to have a sort of a disclaimer that they weren't a medical facility, they weren't a licensed facility, where the licensed ones had to have uh, the more elaborate statements about what services that the state provided. But this issue is one that I think is distinctly bipartisan. It's one that has come from both directions and in many ways came initially from the right where you had all kinds of requirements because people were medical professionals saying you have to provide a sonogram, you have to provide this is the all Casey this information. Case. Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Where, you know, I think that the, the discussion of that case here really gives up the game because you have the dissenters saying, well, if you have to ha say these things in Casey, then you should have to have these disclosures in this case. Well, the answer is you shouldn't have to have the disclosures in either case. And if there's no professional speech doctrine, then you can't compel doctors beyond you know, normal uh, practice of, of informed consent and things like that. So are they now on their way to revisiting Casey? I hope so. Yeah, I, I think that's a realistic possibility. I, I do think that the government will always have more authority to regulate certain amounts of speech that are tied to non-communicative medical procedures. So, you know, whatever else you can say about abortion, abortion doesn't communicate a message. And so, as, as you were saying, informed consent laws. Um, but I think informed consent, we're, we may have a, a narrower view of it yes. than the, the much more expansive view That's right. that we've had before. That's right. Uh, and and. Once you start seeing legislatures directing physicians or other professionals to communicate things based on policy notions as opposed to professional and medical notions, then uh, you run the danger of having this kind of compelled speech that serves some other agenda. Uh, and you know that was simply what was going on in the NIFLA case, and it, what, what was going on in Casey. Yeah. Or you know, I mean, the flip side of that is is um, prohibited speech in those contexts, like the yeah. the Walschlager uh, versus Governor of Florida case exactly. from the Eleventh Circuit, where Florida passed a law that prohibited doctors from routinely asking their patients whether they owned guns, yeah. and <laughs> and this was. I mean, a law that was sort of purely pushed by the NRA because they were bothered that this was happening. Um, so it was just kind of the flip side of yeah. the same phenomenon. It seems as though the court applied very, very strict scrutiny to this case. They say our precedents require disclosures to remedy a harm that is potentially real and not purely hypothetical. They love to do this in the First Amendment context. And there was a question of whether that would happen in the professional speech context. And they dismissed 
the, lo the lower level of scrutiny. Well, but, but that's something that sort of serves as a proxy for this potentially deceptive notion in the Zotterer context, right? I mean, you can always make an argument that more speech is better. And that's why this is a really insidious area that turns the First Amendment on its head, where typically the response from a First Amendment perspective to a problem is, well, more speech is the answer rather than having the government regulate. But here, where you have compelled speech issues, you have the defenders of the regulation saying, but you're always saying that more speech is better. How can this be bad if we compel you to say yeah. something? More, more voluntary speech is better. <laughs> yeah, we get this we, in the we, campus. We, we, should, we, we should have been saying more voluntary speech for exactly. years. In the campus context, they say, well, heckling is a form of speech. Therefore, it's more <laughs> exactly. speech. Therefore, it is better. Exactly. Yeah. But these cases are a form of conscription. It's the government conscri conscripting private speakers to deliver the state's message. And the, the easiest answer for me is, if the state wants to send a message, it has every right to do so. We're always hearing about the government has the power to speak. It has the power to deliver its message. Well, go ahead. Nobody's stopping you. Yeah, well, isn't that what was argued in this case, is that the government had an advertising campaign, it yes. was not effective, so they needed to compel speech, more <laughs> well, or less. <laughs> well, that's, that, that's the thing. Yeah, uh, I mean, you know, sometimes if your advertising campaign isn't effective, it's because people don't buy the message that you're sending. That doesn't mean you can start to police other people's messages. Yeah, and what they did that, to police the messages here, I thought was incredibly burdensome. Here, here's the quote from the opinion. The application of the unlicensed notice to advertisements demonstrates just how burdensome it is. <laughs> the notice applies to all print and digital advertising materials by an unlicensed covered facility. These materials must include a government drafted statement that this facility is not licensed as a medical facility by the state of California and has no licensed medical provider who provides or directly supervises the provision of services. Okay, but then it also said that as California conceded at oral argument, a billboard for an unlicensed facility that says simply choose life would have to surround itself with uh, a 29-word statement from the government in as many as 13 different languages. In this way, the unlicensed notice drowns out the facility's yeah. own well, And I love the, the dissent's response to that, saying, well, it isn't 39 languages in, in all areas of, of the state. It's just in certain parts of L.A. Well, <laughs> even, even though Choose Life was only printed in one language. Yeah. Right. Well, and one of the things that's remarkable about that to me is, as I recall, I think Justice Ginsburg raised some questions at oral argument where she was concerned about that, I mean, because that, no matter what your view on the First Amendment, that requirement is just bonkers. Yeah. And, yeah. and Justice Ginsburg seemed to get that at oral argument, as I recall, and yet, you know, she joins the dissent without well, I, I, raising any of those I questions. I think she joined the dissent just because she was, uh, again, I can't speculate what was going on in her mind, but it, it seems like as the court is being swept up in this choose a side between um, strong First Amendment protections in the commercial area or in the compelled speech area versus uh, the notion that somebody's weaponizing speech, that's the side that she came down on. I, I think that's right, and I'm really worried about that because I Me think too. that there are many decisions where instead of dissenting, what we should be seeing is a concurrence in the judgment based mm -hmm. on different reasoning. I th yes. Like Citizens United, I think, yes. is an example of this where I think the dissenters could have easily said, we think the majority goes too far, but we're not willing to say that a nonprofit group can't run a documentary on TV. That's just, <laughs> exactly. you know, and, and, exactly. and, and instead they're like, no, that's, that's perfectly fine, mainly because of hostility to the larger principle that the majority articulates. That's right. And there, there's another thing, too, that is going on as sort of an undercurrent here and that this decision has had an effect on, and that is this growth of 
um, various kinds of disclosure requirements. And there's a number of cases going on in the Ninth Circuit now that are affected by this. Uh, so, for example, in San Francisco, they have a, a requirement that billboards and other advertising for sugar-sweetened beverages with the definition of what that means um, have to have a disclaimer written by the city about how this uh, leads to obesity, diabetes, and other things. Now, that regulation was struck down uh, as being a violation of resort, or meanwhile, a regulation in Berkeley that requires retailers of cell phones to have a disclosure required by this and written by the city of Berkeley about how there is a radiation risk and basically a deceptive message from the city of Berkeley, by the way. Uh, that was upheld by the Ninth Circuit. Um, the ABA case, the San Francisco case, is now being re-argued after, in the wake of, of NIFLA, uh, the um, Berkeley case has been, uh, it was, the cert was granted and uh, the judgment of the Ninth Circuit upholding the Berkeley ordinance vacated and sent back uh, for review by the Ninth Circuit. This disclosure stuff just confuses me. I mean, I live in New York, so I see the A, Bs, and Cs on uh, front of restaurants. I mean, I see Surgeon right. General warnings on, on cigarettes. We, we were talking about the country of origins on meatpacking. I mean, right. what is a lawful disclosure under the First Amendment. Well, what but is that, that? But that's, that's the question. I mean, this is something that has become so unhinged in recent years. The circuits are all over the place on it. Uh, what rules apply, what those rules mean, have been in play. Up until now, the, uh, the uh, Supreme Court has not been willing to take a case to sort out what Zauderer means and what it doesn't mean. It came to this, the question came to the court in this context where you've got the, the professional speech doctrine issue mixed with the compelled speech issue that has then ramifications for Zauderer and has affected these other cases that are going on. So I'm hoping that this will help as it percolates through the circuit courts, bring some clarity to this area. Yeah, I'm, I'm really interested to see what happens with the Berkeley cell phone case on remand. One of the, the really interesting facts about that case is that the disclaimer that you have to give yeah. is each of the statements taken individually is, I think, true and uncontroversial. Right. But when you put them together, what it basically creates is the impression that if you carry a cell phone like in your shirt pocket, you're going to get breast cancer, um. which is like, not true. There's <laughs> no reason to believe that, um, and and yet that's. I mean, it's the clear implication. That, of that's point. exactly right. And what's so crazy about it is that the San Francisco case involving the sugar sweetened beverages goes the opposite way, for the exactly the same reasons, uh, because there you have statements that required by the city are misleading because they give the implication that only sugar-sweetened beverages versus natural beverages uh, create the risk of obesity and diabetes. And so the court said, you know, that kind of disclosure is too burdensome and, it, you know, it isn't purely factual. And yet in, in, in Berkeley, the Ninth Circuit said it's perfectly okay if the overall impression is a little crazy, if the individual statements viewed in isolation are true. So somebody's got to sort this out, and that's why I think this decision is important. I want to read a little bit from Breyer's dissent before we move on to Janice, which I imagine we'll spend a little less time on because this case seems to be uh, charting very new ground in, in the First Amendment world and maybe a way that Janice is, is not, though you might argue differently. So let's read a little bit from Breyer's dissent before we move on here. He said, this constitutional approach threatens to create serious problems because much, perhaps most, human behavior takes place through speech and because much, perhaps most, law regulates that speech in terms of its content. The majority's approach at the, at the least threatens considerable liter litigation over the constitutional validity of much, perhaps most, government regulation, as we were talking about, especially in the disclosure context. Ah, that's a shame. <laughs> <laughs> 
goes on to say virtually every disclosure law could be considered content-based, for virtually every disclosure law requires individuals to speak a particular message. He goes on to say, thus the majority's view, if taken literally, could radically change prior law, perhaps placing much securities law or consumer protection law at constitutional risk, depending on how broadly its exceptions are interpreted. He goes on to say, historically, the court has been weary of claims that regulation of business activity, particularly health-related activity, violates the Constitution ever since the court departed from the approach it set forth in Lochner v. New York, which is now used as a pejorative yeah. in most circles. Right. Um, right. Ordinary, ordinarily, economic and social legislation has been thought to raise little constitutional concern. In the name of the First Amendment, the majority today treads into territory where the pre-New Deal, as well as the post-New Deal court, refused to go. Yeah, so I mean, if you want to understand Breyer's take on the First Amendment, I think the best thing you can read is the work of uh, former Yale Law Dean Robert Post, um, because <laughs> Breyer's opinions in these cases could basically just be made up of excerpts from Robert Post. Uh, Who's critiqued articles. our work as well. Yeah, yeah well, and he, and he critiqued an article that I wrote and was very skeptical of it. He wrote a, I, I wrote an article called Occupational Speech in the First Amendment, where I defended basically the result in NIFLA, um, and he wrote a, a counter argument called Adam Smith's First Amendment, where he said that you know this would lead to Lochnerizing and stuff. Um, but the view is, it's sort of a weird view that the First Amendment is just about political speech, but not in the Robert Bork like super super narrow sense. It's it's politics in a broader sense that seems to have boundaries wherever Robert. Post and, and Justice Breyer think they should be, um, whereas the majority in this case, and I think the trend of the Roberts Court, is just l far less purposive um, and more just broadly libertarian, that we protect speech because speech deserves to be protected, not because we like the results of the speech. My concern just from a public relations standpoint for the First Amendment, the, this conversation about whether the First Amendment is being weaponized by conservatives, I think going to politicize the First Amendment in a way it probably wasn't 10 years ago. but is becoming, and my my fear is that as new law students head up to become judges and lawyers, that they'll take that approach to the First Amendment, where right now we have bipartisan support for it, and they and, they, and they'll they'll come to that conclusion because they'll say, well, all the precedent we set in these cases involving political dissenters, you know, building a robust First uh, First Amendment through the Fourteenth Amendment, allowed for this to take place. I was at a Columbia Law Symposium a couple of months back, where it was the the title was First Amendment for All. Uh, the First Amendment in an age of inequality. And I sat there for, throughout most of the conversation, which happened all day, and listened to progressive lawyers complain about how the First Amendment has been Lochnerized and it yeah. is undercutting uh, progressive concerns. And it's not just the Seedman approach, who more or less argues that if you're expecting the First Amendment to result in a progressive society or progressive outcomes, you shouldn't depend there. I think a lot of the conversation about his article has been obfuscated of what he and really the, says. And these people uh, complain about result-oriented judges. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, but no, you've touched on something there, and, and you see several strains of it in, in the words that you read from uh, Justice Breyer's uh, dissent there, and, th and that is uh, labeling a particular view toward the First Amendment as a way of trying to create a straw man to knock it down, uh, exaggerating the impact of the decision, saying that it's going to affect all regulation, and then third, saying, but we should be able to require kinds of disclosures kind of whenever we want. Well, that you kind of have to unpack and look at what levels of scrutiny apply to it. But let's look at that first point you make, and yeah. how that affects the rising generation, and that is there are a number of code words that have been used for a long time to sort of try and undercut through labeling protections for the First Amendment. Um, absolutist 
is one saying if you are a First Amendment absolutist, and by the way, I don't know what that means, but if you're a First Amendment absolutist, you're an obvious simpleton because you don't recognize any other values. First Amendment Lochnerism or Lochnerizing the First Amendment is another one saying that we're hearkening back to 1905 and protecting all business regulations no matter what because of a fundamental right to contract on your own with business. And again, it's a parody of the issue. It's a bumper sticker argument. It's not really an analysis of whether or not this kind of regulation of speech uh, uh, makes any sense. First Amendment fundamentalism, another favorite, uh, trying to treat First Amendment as if it's some sort of religious doctrine and as people who simply worship it without thinking about what it means. Um, and then, of course, weaponizing the First Amendment. All of those are simply labels and bumper stickers that don't really get into uh, what the First Amendment is meant to do. And by the way, they are result-oriented, saying that you're criticizing these views of strong First Amendment protections because they don't result in the kinds of policies or outcomes that we would prefer. Um, instead, what we really have to do in terms of uh, confronting conferences like the one that you mentioned is get out there and make the arguments that we need to make and persuade people that there is more to it than simply trying to decide whether or not the First Amendment is going to be the tool that you want to use to get the policy that you want. Yeah. I want to turn to Janice now and generally speaking this case dealt with dues to unions by non-members and whether those dues which were used for collective bargaining purposes uh, with state employers, the idea being that it's too burdensome to negotiate with a bunch of different parties so we're going to just negotiate with the union and because we don't want to have a free rider problem, uh, if you are not a member of the union you need to pay dues to, to pay for that collective bargaining. Uh, the court said, well, no, this is compelled speech because these money is fungible, more or less, and uh, the money can be used for the union's political purposes, or at least it supports the unions. In the public makes sector. Makes them more power, powerful. In, in the public sector. Yes. And then the court was explicitly not uh, ruling any of the same things for private sector unionism. Yeah. And this, this it reverses Abood, the Detroit Board of Education, which held that unions could collect dues from non-members. Uh, for collective bargaining purposes. So it overturns precedent in the same way that NIFLA perhaps overturned precedent when we were talking about Casey. Uh, I, I want to look at this case before. Interesting side point though. Three of the cases this term were about compelled speech. You know, Masterpiece Cake Shop, Janus, and NIFLA. Yeah, I want to explore this case through uh, the perspective of Eugene Volokh, who didn't agree with how the court came out here. And he put it succinctly in a blog post on the Vola conspiracy. He said, I don't think there's any First Amendment problem with compelled payments of union, union agency fees at all. The government can constitutionally require people to pay money to the government in taxes, money that the government can then use for ideological purposes, for example, supporting a war, opposing racism, promoting environmentalism, and so on. Likewise, the government can constitutionally require people to pay money to unions, money that the unions can then use for ideological purposes. Is Volokh wrong? I think that just sounds like Ipsy Dixit. Like yeah. that's that's just yeah. I, I think this because I think it. I mean, you know, I have a lot of respect for you, uh, Eugene Volokh as a First Amendment scholar, but he, I I actually think there is a difference between compelling someone to give tax money to the government in sort of the neutral way that all of us do, and requiring someone to effectively subsidize a private organization 
that may advance messages that you disagree with? I think that is the key difference for purposes of this case is that unions are a private organization and that uh, there at least the courts can effectively police the line. The, the courts would find it very difficult uh, without turning government upside down to police a more ambitious line of um, uh, not making people pay taxes for government propaganda, although government propaganda is often bad and dangerous. But in the case of the unions, uh, and, and we should make clear here, um, earlier cases had already established that actual uh, political contributions by the union were not what was at stake. But uh, especially with public sector unions, and this is another of the ways in which the public sector um, angle of this case probably played a role, um, uh, co collective bargaining negotiations involve policy issues. For example, uh, in uh, police union, they might be arguing about uh, responses by the city uh, uh, to lethal force cases. Uh, in school issues, they were would be arguing not just about pensions or about salaries, uh, but about the ways in which schools are managed that everyone has an opinion about. Mm -hmm. uh, and <coughs> so um, those sorts of actions by uh, public unions uh, uh, more often than not, touching on things that people have political opinions about, unlike, again, uh, you know, if, if, even if there were a policy uh, uh, under negotiation at a private company's union, it would be unlikely to be of as, as general public interest as whether or not uh, a police department, a, a school system, or whatever uh, were, were to change things. This is more like being compelled to support a different private speaker in the public square about exactly the sorts of issues that people uh, would already be involved in local politics uh, because of their strong beliefs about yeah. it. Yeah, and, and you know, I, and I would echo too the utmost respect for Eugene Volokh. And so, anytime someone of who you know is as expert in these areas as he is, then you have to pay attention to his views and answer them. Um, uh, with uh, sound reasoning and, and, and good logic. I mean, and, and as much as I respect Eugene's views on this, he's not always right on the first time. <laughs> he, 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 he was skeptical of uh, protection for professional speech. He has an article where he suggests that the existence of the professional client relationship should change the First Amendment analysis. He wrote an amicus brief on the wrong side in the Alvarez case. He wrote an amicus brief on the wrong side in the Masterpiece Cake Shop uh, case. But that being said... But he gets we, a lot we, of things right. We, 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 we agree on that. things more often than not, and, and almost all the time. There are just a few exceptions, and this is one of them. Um, and I would agree that you really can't compare these kinds of agency fee arrangements with taxes. I mean, it's one of the reasons why you don't have taxpayer standing, except if taxes are being used to support religion. And then you can have an exception to the general rule against taxpayer standing. And so here, where you're talking about having a private organization that is forced through compelled contributions, uh, one of the things that the majority opinion says is that, uh, you know, no one would doubt that if the government forced you to make a contribution to a particular private uh, entity that expressed views uh, that uh, that would be unconstitutional. And that clearly is true. The question is whether or not because this entity has been authorized by the state to be the exclusive agent for collective bargaining in this public union, uh, whether or not that overrides the First Amendment interest. And the answer here is no. I, I thought that was one of the most remarkable things about uh, Justice Kagan's dissent in this case was that, I, I mean, it's a well-written, very sharp dissent. It's a very well-written. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, she, she really gives it to the majority. But I, I think basically totally absent is this discussion of 
like it does matter that the union is a private organization. <laughs> <laughs> and like that that seems to be a significant fact and she doesn't really grapple Here's with it. Here's the other thing about But what about I bar dues? I mean the bar association is a private organization, right? Oh <laughs> <laughs> what a juicy topic that is. <laughs> Watch this space. Well, exactly. And and when it comes to whether or not there is a professional speech doctrine, I think stay tuned on that one. But uh, there's, there's another aspect of this that I found mirrored in the NIFLA case where you have the dissent saying, well, what about Planned Parenthood versus Casey? Uh, if you can do that, you can do this. Well, here you have Justice Kagan time and time again saying, well, if Garcetti is right, then we ought to be able to, uh, you know, up, uphold the, these agency fee arrangements because, after all, if you're a public employee, you don't have rights anyway. Now. Correct me if I'm wrong, but hasn't Garcetti been one of the most criticized decisions of the Roberts Courts for not Roberts Court for not protecting First Amendment rights? I mean, Erwin uh, Chemerinsky makes that and that and uh, humanitarian uh, law project as the sort of flagship decisions for why he thinks the Roberts Court is not sufficiently speech protective. And now we see it as being used as the primary argument or one of the primary arguments being used by Justice Kagan for why the Janus decision is wrong. It's be being weaponized. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I mean, as, as a public interest lawyer, I love reading dissents like that because whenever a judge is like, well, if this is unconstitutional, that means all these other things are unconstitutional. Well, I just, that's when I start typing out my complaints. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, like uh, Justice Scalia's dissent in Lawrence versus Texas. Oh, yeah, yeah, came back to bite him. Yeah, well, Bob, I mean, in the campus context, what about compulsory student fees? Uh, for well, and it does get back to that. I mean, you know, you have the Southworth case uh, yeah. on that, and, and um, you know, here it's one of the examples that uh, that Kagan uses, saying, "Hey, we compel we compel contributions all the time." And I, the response for me is, "Well, maybe we shouldn't." <laughs> yeah. And it's not a private organization necessarily in that case. Right. That's part of your. Okay. So, anything else to say on on this Janus case? Bob, I want to ask you. Oh, go ahead. Well, I've been collecting some of the ways in which um, uh, unions and local governments are planning to or have already started evading Janus. Because there were 20 states that had this sort of right. agreement, right? Well, and uh, there are at least 20 ways to try to get around it, <laughs> including, including uh, well, one of my favorites is recharacterizing public sector jobs as private, sometimes the very same jobs uh, that had earlier been private and then had been recharacterized as public in order to get them under various other statutory schemes, mm -hmm. now being reprivatized. But, but the, the big one that people are looking at, is, uh, which I believe um, uh, is, is underway in New York or something close, is for the city government to simply hand money to the union rather than route it through workers' paychecks. And if they hand money to the union, which it, it all makes perfect sense, you're negotiating against me over very important stuff, here's the money to do it with. Um, the <laughs> it's, it, it, um, according to all of its advocates and some of its critics, uh, this would enable them to reconstruct exactly what's going on with no vulnerability to a follow-up First Amendment thing. Now, even if that's the way in which uh, this whole sad saga ends, it will be lovely to have them on record as saying that this is all collusion between the politicians that the, that the unions elected to negotiate against them uh, and their friends in the unions. Yeah, I think there's a lot of voters who are not going to appreciate having to subsidize yeah. that speech. I tried to get someone who uh, on the podcast who would defend 
Kagan's dissent or a Breyer's dissent in uh, NIFLA, I must have reached out to like 10 people in, at that time of the summer, so everyone's on vacation, or they said they otherwise wouldn't do it without giving me a reason, but um, I'm trying to do my best to represent their dissents but, here. But the, but the point, and, and you know, they are very powerful opinions, and they do reflect what the true division is both on the court and also in the academy. And so they are issues and discussions that we really need to pay careful attention to and I think really work through the nuances of them. Yeah. Well, and I will also say you, there is this popular view of the court that it really is all politics. And yes. that when the conservatives decide something, they are just trying to help out conservative causes. And when the liberals decide something, they're just trying to help out liberal causes. And even though I think, I mean, you can say a conservative cause won in NIFLA and in Janus, the divisions are really about how to view the First Amendment, and those certainly have implications that are political, but it's not just a partisan Well, divide. when you look at what happened in Casey and what happened in um, NIFLA, I, I think it, if you're not involved in the legal world, and even if you are, you can see there's you're trying to speak out of both sides of your mouth, and there's there's no consistency there, and, that, and that's easier to make the politicized argument. Yeah, well, I, th I think you also just have to understand the context in which Casey was decided, which, you know, the, the, was that the early 90s? I, yeah, 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 I, th I think 92 or 93. Um, yeah. But, uh, the, I mean, the content, we were asking whether Roe v. Wade was going to be overturned, and people thought it was going to be overturned, and then surprise, surprise, it wasn't in this sort of unusual three-judge written opinion. And I think they had to do a lot of horse trading and making mm. concessions to, to reach that outcome. And that kind of resulted in this weird doctrine where you have this kind of expansive view of um, uh, informed consent, uh, but, you know, the trade-off for that is that Roe v. Wade doesn't get overturned. Yeah. So, and I, I, go ahead. I, I would just say on, on this division, on the court division in, in the academy, um, one way to conceptualize it is that uh, uh, one side starts still from the uh, mid-20th century assumption that um, there is a large public sector within which public employees don't have very much uh, uh, leeway about what, what to say, in which businesses are also part of this large regulated public sector, but in which there is a thriving little corner of town that is set aside for religion and for people to get up on soapboxes and talk about whatever is on their mind. And they're very sincere about thinking that um, the, both sides of the First Amendment are adequately um, vindicated so long as there is a section where everyone can get up and worship freely. Uh, Hyde Park in London. <laughs> right, a, a, a Hyde Speaker's Park. Corner. And that what has happened on both sides of the First Amendment, because we could talk about religion too, is that the contrary view, which is, no, this permeates everything. Uh, even if you were a public employee, you get some of it. Even if you were in a public school, you get some of it. Uh, you don't necessarily get to uh, turn the public school over to the use of your religion, but you might get the chance to meet with a few fellow believers. Um, uh, the, this idea that the First Amendment, uh, as I was it Solzhenitsyn said about good and evil runs through the heart of, of, you know, of every locality rather than being something that can be zoned into a particular place. Well, I think it is interesting to see the, the discussion come back to progressives now trying to move back toward Robert Bork in 1971, saying that only political speech or democratic speech is, is protected. Uh, you know, anyone who thinks that only political speech is protected hasn't listened to one lately. Uh, <laughs> you know, everything else that the court is moving toward protecting goes more to how we live, and I think it goes is more important to defining freedom 
uh, and if the government can meddle in, you know, who can persuade who about what products to buy or what sexual practices to have or what sexual entertainment is, uh, that goes more to permeating how people live than whether or not they can listen or what to you can say to get your business off the ground. Yeah. Or, right. Well, and the, the point that I like to make to people is I ask them, how many political decisions did you make in the last week? Okay, now, how many commercial decisions did you make in the last week? How many commercial decisions did you make in the last year? Can you even remember the last day when you didn't make a decision about whether or not to buy something? I mean, maybe that suggests that commercial speech, speech about the decisions we are gonna make in the marketplace, for most people is practically much more important than the kinds of political speech they're exposed to. And Nike versus Kasky really brought this home to me because you had um, you know, the posture of, oh, well, no, this is just speech about uh, the qualities of a product when everyone knew, you know, the whole reason everyone <laughs> was talking about it was that it was effectively a political speech. It was well, exactly and it was, a, it was a political editorial, for God's sake. Yeah. <laughs> and um, uh, so, yeah, that line has blurred. The, um, uh, of course, uh, when we think of ourselves as talking about politics, we are often talking about um, how commercial actors behave uh, and telling each other facts or disclosures or warnings uh, that are charged with politics, of course. I want to close up here with the other two big First Amendment decisions uh, this term, and I want to do it quickly because I know Bob's got billable hours and uh, <laughs> I'm on the clock here. But Minnesota Voters Alliance v. Mansky, this one seemed pretty obvious to me. It dealt with uh, bans on political apparel and polling places, and the holding in that case was that Minnesota's ban uh, violated the First Amendment free speech clause. But I think it only dealt with issue advocacy, not necessarily politicians, well, right? Like, no, it was anything that could be considered political. And what was interesting about it uh, is that the court defined the polling place as a non-public forum mm -hmm. uh, so that the state has the greatest latitude in, to, to regulate what kind of speech can go on there because it's open for a particular purpose and too much parading or campaigning or all yeah. that would disrupt what it's for, but said this regulation can't even survive in that context, saying that it's just you know, expansive and, and no definitions and, uh, you know, even with the most deferential view, the court wasn't willing to uphold the regulation. Yeah, I read it as um, uh, restating the, that uh, they do have a right to manage uh, apparel at polling places, but that they have to go back and draft rules that do not leave so much discretion uh, with yeah. the uh, manager of, of each polling place. Yeah, I, I, the money quote for me, I, th I think that the, the thing that actually decided the case is if you were wearing a shirt that had the Second Amendment written on it, that was political and prohibited. But if you were wearing a shirt that had the text of the First Amendment on it, that was apparently not political and you could do it. And if you go into court and you're trying to defend that distinction, <laughs> like, God help you, because you are going to lose. What was, the, what was the makeup on that? Was that a 9-0 decision? It was 7-2. No. Um, with Sotomayor. With Sotomayor. Well, but Sotomayor dissented just on the grounds that the case should have been certified right. to the state That's Supreme right. Court oh, okay. because they could have given it a narrower interpretation. Um, and she was joined by Breyer. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was not very persuaded by that argument. I mean, you could do that, but these things are always discretionary for courts. And given the length of time the case had gone on, and any interpretive gloss the state Supreme Court put on it would have been totally artificial. Like, they would have just been saying, like, oh, we interpret, you know, political to just mean express advocacy. Like, 
That has actually no basis in the text of the statute. I don't think they need to give the state court the chance to do that. Masterpiece Cake Shop um, versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission uh, dealt with a baker. I'm sure everyone's um, familiar with the facts there, but the holding was a bit interesting, and I'm not sure something that many people in the First Amendment community anticipated, at least listening to the debate you did previously, Bob. The holding was that the, the commission's actions in assessing a cake shop's owner's reasons for declining to make a cake for a same-sex couple's wedding celebrated uh, celebration, wedding celebration, violated the free exercise clause because the commission was seen to be discriminated against the religion based on what was said yeah. at the... Uh, right, well, th this was foreshadowed a bit uh, at the oral argument. But Kennedy's right, question, yeah. Kennedy was asking questions about whether or not the treatment of the baker by the Colorado Civil Rights Commission was sufficiently respectful of his views and of his religion. Uh, and, and that's really how it came out. And I think it was also foreshadowed by the confusion shown by questions from both sides of the bench uh, about, okay, how do we limit the principle in this? How do we determine when something is sufficiently expressive? And I think the court just threw up its hands and also looked for a way to find some common ground by uh, saying, okay, we're going to treat this like viewpoint-based discrimination, or in this case, because it was a free exercise uh, decision, um, um, you know, uh, discriminatory treatment yeah. uh, of religion based on these particular comments. Uh, what's interesting though is that you see both sides of the court pulling in somewhat different directions where you see the conservative justice saying, but of course this was expressive and that's really the basis for this opinion. And even Kennedy's majority opinion says that, you know, we, we wouldn't have normally thought of cake as being an exercise in free expression, but as times change, we see different ways in which these rights manifest themselves, um, which echoes somewhat his language from the Obergefell decision, interestingly enough. Um, and, and so the free speech elements are sort of permeate the decisions until you get to uh, dissents where it says, this isn't about the First Amendment, this is, or it isn't about the free speech clause, that nothing about this has anything to do with free speech. Um, but other than that, you see the common ground where you, we, you see them, okay, we'll focus on this one element, which led to Sotomayor's uh, dig about why couldn't they have done this in Trump versus Hawaii. Well, that's what I was asking. <laughs> it seems like they're applying, they're, they're looking at motives, they're applying strict scrutiny in these guys, and then at, in the travel ban case, it's they don't care to look but at the different contexts. But in different contexts, different contexts no, 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 I know. No, it the is court made clear context. that in this context, it was looking at a basically discriminatory statement made in an adjudication by a decision maker. Whereas in Trump, you have a statement being made by a policymaker, both on the campaign trail and generally, in an area where the president has the greatest discretion and the courts are at their most deferential. Well, so you can talk about how motive may have driven both, but in very different contexts. Even so, it was interesting that the dissent by uh, Ginsburg and Sotomayor in Masterpiece Theater said, um, uh, well, even if we acknowledge that there were uh, some unfortunate uh, prejudicial comments by the adjudicator, these things can be uh, uh, laundered or, or rectified, to use a more neutral uh, uh, term, by um, the fact that it was a multi-stage process and that uh, actors at other stages um, were not actuated by any prejudice and uh, it was a multi-person panel and all of these things uh, can leave a potentially tainted 
project, uh, uh, adjudication purged of its taint. Now, of course, exactly the same things could be argued, even though it wasn't an adjudication, on behalf of the president's policy uh, in the Hawaii case, because although he may have been as pre prejudicial as all get out, we it was then kicked to a bureaucracy that did not have similar motives and was uh, well. Yeah, but it doesn't just down to policy It, it doesn't too. just come down to motives. It comes down to different results because in Colorado, in Masterpiece Cake Shop, what you had were dis decisions that went in exactly the opposite way when bakers refused to make cakes criticizing gays using Bible verses so and, and, and criticizing gay marriage. So when you have those disparate results, then it's easier to look at a statement being made by a commission member and saying this does have a substantive impact. Although what, what, what I find really interesting about that, and this kind of goes through uh, Kagan's uh, concurrence and Gorsuch's concurrence is they have completely different views about whether those are actually opposite outcomes. Kagan, yes. Kagan says yes. these situations could not be more different. There's an obvious distinction between them. And Gorsuch says these are exactly the same. And in, in very much the same way I think as the gay marriage cases, it really comes down to a a much more meta-level view of what is a wedding cake, you know. Well, but that's where, where I thought uh, Gorsuch brilliantly used what he called the Goldilocks rule. Mm -hmm. You know, if you look at this at too high a level of generality, we're just talking about ingredients. You're talking about eggs and butter and, and milk and what goes into a cake. And if you look at it too specific a level, you're talking about a wedding cake. But the, uh, the dissent wants to look at it as just right. We're just talking about wedding cakes generically. Or we're talking about cakes generically. And so this is a refusal to provide service. And so depending on where you put it on that scale determines how you, de how you decide whether or not this is an expressive piece of work or not. Well, it depends if there's a particularized message. And I think this was the point you made in the debate. And I was right. really interested to see how they would come out on that question, and they but didn't. they didn't. <laughs> and they didn't. Although there were questions that permeated the decisions talking about whether or not there was writing on the cake or not, which goes to that, that issue. Yeah. But they didn't decide. I, it. I myself think that if there had been writing on the cake that uh, they probably would have just gotten enough of the liberals to say this is expression. Um, that the, the difference between uh, writing or at least symbols and, and, and otherwise would, will be where they eventually come down uh, in, in, in drawing a line. But um, the, well, the question is, though, is it expressive? Would it have been expressive if Mary Beth Tinker had baked, baked black cupcakes to take to school <laughs> uh, to protest the Vietnam War? Well, um, I would point out one more thing about uh, the Kagan and Breyer um, crossover, which is not the only time they did it this term. And uh, uh, in many, although not all, of the cases where Kagan has crossed over, uh, it isn't just that she's limiting the grounds on which the conservatives get their victory, which is part of, I'm sure, what she has in mind, but also um, uh, embracing principles that have some generative power for liberal causes in the future. And when I saw that, um, we are now uh, probably in for a cycle of cases in which uh, prejudice against religion uh, can be more closely scrutinized in adjudicative processes. I thought of a controversy in my own state of Maryland in which there was a Muslim-oriented retirement uh, community, or so active seniors, I guess, uh, community that was pitched at the Muslim community and that drew all of this zoning opposition. Now, you probably um, may find it hard to tell exactly the difference between NIMBY zoning opposition that simply wanted the ground to remain undeveloped uh, and the large amounts that were seen on social media 
area of prejudicial anti-Muslim sentiment um, that uh, also entered into the, the attempts to stop this process. Now, to the extent that they could identify decision makers in an adjudication like that uh, as having in any way shared in the prejudicial things, um, I suspect that this might lead to greater success for some liberal causes. Uh, well, and, and it's interesting too, I mean, all of this focus on, on um, the free exercise, I'd like to see uh, as much emphasis on the Establishment Clause, you know, questions of whether or not the Religious Freedom Restoration Act uh, violates the Establishment Clause. For example, it would be lovely to see the court take that up. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, one more significant thing about the decision of Masterpiece Cakes, this is the issue that uh, the Institute for Justice did an amicus brief on. Uh, our concern was that the lower court decision was based in part on the fact that uh, the baker was engaged in the commercial marketplace and so yeah. he should enjoy diminished freedom. And so our, the focus of our brief was that's wholly foreign to the First Amendment. The court has repeatedly said that the fact that you're paid for speech doesn't make a difference and the court quite soundly rejects that. All right, so we need to wrap up here. I want to get closing thoughts on the future of the court. Do we think we'll continue to see this expansion of First Amendment protections or will Kavanaugh and Gorsuch um, you know, not be as expansive as we saw with, the, with, with Kennedy and uh, Scalia? Scalia not, of course, being excellent on the First Amendment. But Kavanaugh depends on the case. Depends on the case, yeah. If it's flag burning, he'll love to tell you all about it. That's right. right. <laughs> That's right. Kavanaugh, of course, has this big record in campaign speech and uh, commercial um, cases suggesting that he will fit well into uh, Kennedy's views and that the court will not change very much on that. Um, my own reading of Kavanaugh as a judge is that he's more like uh, Chief Justice Roberts than any of the others currently on the court that he thinks institutionally that uh, he would probably be the one right there with um, Roberts in avoiding what he would see as uh, threats to the court based on popular revolts or, or illegitimacy. Um, it's a moderating force, but well, I Obamacare can't, is, is, um, is but, I, but overall, I can't, um, uh, can't see ways in which the court would be that much different on these issues. It's interesting because most of the commentators I've been reading compare him more often to Thomas just because they, they try and paint him as this ultra-conservative in the way that Thomas is, and I think you're more right that he's more like Roberts. Yeah, I, I, I don't think he's going to uh, be, be a uh, Thomas clone at all. Yeah, Bob? Yeah, well again, assuming that uh, Kavanaugh is confirmed, um, then I, I think that it will keep the court pretty much with the same ideological mix and same mix of, of views, similar mix of views, on First Amendment issues. There's no way to, to extrapolate from that how he would decide or how the court will go in any particular case. But I'm, what I'm hoping is that if he is a justice in the mold of Chief, Chief Justice Roberts, that there will be a movement toward collegiality and, and the continued um, uh, professionalism of the court as an institution. And that institutional value to the court is, and something that uh, Judge Kavanaugh respects, is, is very important. Um, I'm afraid, seeing the way the court was split uh, with Janice and with Nifla, that there's the possibility that First Amendment doctrine will become uh, more polarized on the court. Um, and if you have a personality on the court that is more like the Chief Justice, uh, there may be some counterweight to that. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that the court as an institution can resist the kind of polarization that we see in the rest of our politics. Yeah. Paul? So, well, so I think the question is, I mean, Kavanaugh was a George W. Bush appointee, and Roberts is a George W. Bush appointee, and Alito's a George W. Bush appointee, and the 
I think one of the defining characteristics of uh, Bush's appointees was that he was very interested in judicial minimalism, judicial restraint, and people who were going to defer to the government in a lot of circumstances. And we actually and you don't like that. Well, no. <laughs> and, and so, as, as as a litigator at the Institute for Justice, I am not a fan of of judicial deference. We like judicial engagement. Uh, and, and we have sort of seen the, the wages of that decision with things like the Obamacare decision, where we got uh, maybe more restraint than, than what conservatives wanted. Um, in terms of First Amendment doctrine, I think it's going to be a question of whether Kavanaugh is more aligned with Chief Justice Roberts, who is, I think, quite libertarian on First Amendment issues. He likes that bright line. Um, or Justice Alito, who is much less speech protective in certain contexts where he sees the speech as being low value, like in Snyder versus Phelps, in the Stevens case, violent video games. Um, and you know, I, I can't read Kavanaugh's mind, so I don't know where he falls on that. I hope that he falls more towards Chief Justice Roberts. All right. Well, thank you everyone for coming here this morning. Thank you. All right, thank you. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Nico Perino, and recorded and edited by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk, or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. You can also email us feedback at so to speak at thefire.org, or call in a question for a future show at 215-315-0100. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. As always, they help us attract new listeners to the show. Until next time, thank you for listening.